0: Hello and welcome back to We Are Here Tomorrow. My name is John Mundahl. With me as always is Zach Faust. Hello, I am
1: here on three hours of sleep. And why is that? We uh, just added to the family with a little puppy. So he is is very cute. He is uh, a little bit fat and he is very full of pee.
0: (laughs) sounds like a any any sort of little baby so that's perfect that's <laughs> yes. perfect well unfortunately we're not talking about little franklin this little no. little baby puppy but instead we're talking about voting technology episode 18 or 8 in season 2 this is going to be released november 30th or so it's about 1 month after a hot and heavy round of government elections if mm-hmm. i do say so myself and you know, this, tech, this podcast is about technology, and fortunately, technology wasn't pivotal this time around, and, and yes. thank God. But yes. no matter your worldview, the voting process probably may seem less than ideal in some mm-hmm. aspect. So we wanted to investigate it on this podcast. Definitely, yeah. And so... What are we actually specifically talking about? So things that are out of scope are things that are kind of early in the process. Think like pre-vote infrastructure. So voter rolls, voter registration, voter outreach, all of those have been absolutely expanded into the digital world, but mm-hmm. they don't really seem as important um, to what's going on right now. And what we're also not talking about is kind of the post-vote policies. So translating votes into representation, whether that's the electoral college, which some could consider as a technology mm-hmm. or gerrymandering technology things that's not really our focus instead we're focusing on literally from eligible voter casting a ballot to confirming vote totals just that really simple you know typically election day process right. and that seems that seems simple right but it's not there <laughs> are so many moving pieces to the process like interfaces with humans and technology and double checking that the machines and, and counting etc are working right and there's also so many dynamics and considerations to account for. And we're also, we're obviously US-centric. Zach yes. and I live in the heartland in the Midwest of the United States. But do. it's very useful to like obviously learn globally. Voting is a thing that happens around the world. So we will be considering voting from a, a bigger scale.
1: Yeah, it's cool to see that like, like you said, voting happens literally all around the world. And yet almost no two countries really do it alike. Which is awesome to see and very unique. Right. When we talked about this topic at the beginning, you know, obviously, why did this topic, why was this topic on the tips of our tongues? The election, right? It's been center stage in the U.S. for the better part of like the last 12 months. Worldwide, I'm sure it's been the international news story to watch with skepticism. If I imagine for a moment that I didn't live in the U.S., my guess would be that the election stirred up some of the same like international feelings that Brexit did. Okay. Okay. Back home in the States, I can say without a doubt that there was a lot of mixed feelings about the election, more than I can remember at any other time. Does that resonate with you, John? Yeah. Some that are like, this went off without a hitch. Some that said, very much the other way. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so like, these hot button issues were at the tips of everyone's tongues, whether they liked it or not. COVID got political, putting a red and blue haze over even the most minute of daily activities. hmm One silver lining to this fog, though, was that when the American people were given the opportunity to make their voices heard, I think we did, and we did in almost record numbers. Above all else, the people, capital P, wanted to make sure that they were being heard. So for that to happen, the vote must be fair for us, right? Mm -hmm. Virus be damned. We voted by mail. We voted by booth. And some people even voted right from their smartphones. We'll talk about them a little bit later. (gasps) (laughs) But with all these different ways of voting, did we kind of open the election up to fraud? Are we giving bad actors too many avenues of corruption? And what is the most secure way to vote? And do we think that the technology can get us there in the next 20 years? All this and more in episode 18. Let's do it.
0: Right, so we wanted to kick off this episode, getting into this topic, diving into some kind of the election blooper reel is what we're considering <laughs> it. Talking about a couple useful stories uh, as to you know what not to do, basically. And the one that came to my mind initially was the Iowa Democratic Party caucuses in 2020. So Iowa is the first state um, to start to whittle down the presidential candidates, and. One of the stories out of 2016 was that Trump, who won presidency, obviously dominated the online campaigning. So in 2020, the Democratic Party, they are committed to coming online and competing hard. They wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, they wanted to dominate online campaigning. Thus, Iowa, kind of the first Democratic Party to make a move in this space in their caucuses. They really embrace technology. And, and to begin with, caucuses are weird. Yeah, they are. Basically, it's hundreds of people across Iowa in gymnasiums or cafeterias
1: lobbying each other to join their candidates cluster. It's really cool to watch, by the way. So when you do get the chance, you know, come the next presidential election, it's really funny. It's really. Yeah, it is really cool to watch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's kind of disorderly, which makes it kind of cool to see and people debating and and trying to convince each other. Uh, So that kind of disorder you know, makes sense for technology. Technology is something that can bring order if if it can be found. So insert Shadow Inc., which is a for-profit software development company.
1: Again, just like, sounds like a villain, but continue.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Shadow, they make an app, they're, they're commissioned to make an app to report the supporter counts at each location. Basically, voter counts in this early stage process. The issue is that Shadow only had a $60,000 budget. Iowa caucus, Democratic Mm. Party was apparently doing this on the cheap. And thus, with only $60,000, you know, you might think that's a lot for an app, but an app is maybe more like a million dollars. With $60,000, they had limited programming hours to design and test. They also had to use free trial infrastructure. I say that in in quotation marks because, you know, it's limited. Uh, And they had very minimal rollout support programming, et cetera. What's the result? Well, you you might already know, but if not, there was tons of trouble the night of the caucuses. There was trouble downloading the app. Some places it was like two of 20 some people could actually download the app. Therefore, they can't report the results. And then organizers said, okay, well, we have to go to a backup plan. We're going to just write our numbers down on a sheet of paper and we're going to call them in, call them in via phone. Wow. And the call in, because there's so many people trying to call in these numbers, that <laughs> phone line backed up for days. And I think there was like a day plus or days plus delay in the actual results. So basically mayhem and something that we uh, definitely should try and avoid if we're trying to, you know, roll out
1: apps into this space. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. So that was kind of like an internal to the U.S., a little bit of a debacle, right? Mm-hmm. In pretty much every sense of the word. Okay, so that's a little bit of a lighthearted, you know, fair, things fell apart, there was disorder. Now what we want to look at is, assuming that this technology can be figured out or not figured out, is, is there really a market for it or is there, is there really a motive? Are there bad actors, like we mentioned above, that are looking to get in and instigate fraud in our election? Right. Okay. Okay. And so, in fraud, whether it's voter fraud, corporate fraud, or something else, takes two pieces. Like we said, the opportunity and that bad actor to abuse that opportunity. Call back to the first episode of season two when we talked about fraudulent pharmaceuticals. We basically discussed the fact that more chaos equals more opportunity for fraud. Hmm. John just laid out the chaotic opportunity, right? The inherently hectic caucus made even more chaotic by the technological uncertainty. Are there these bad actors out there, and are they powerful enough to take the opportunity for fraud as they come? Doing a quick Google search, you know, a fraudulent election is nothing new. With the number of democracies worldwide, it comes as no surprise that a small number of those elections are just going to be corrupt. In general, though, we think of this only happening in smaller countries, maybe local elections, like the small potatoes elections, right? Sure, where they don't matter
0: as much, therefore, you know, a little skewing of the vote isn't isn't, uh, the most
1: impactful thing said one way, right? Exactly. Yeah. From, yeah. From a 30,000 foot view. Definitely not. When we were talking about this episode, originally I was actually joking with John that, you know, tongue in cheek, I said, wouldn't it be funny if the U S was totally doing this type of thing and we just have no idea. So let's talk about that one time in 1991 when Bill Clinton got Boris Yeltsin possibly elected as the first president of Russia. Uh-huh. So the Clinton administration, and this is by the way, before people start freaking out, saying that this is conspiratorial. We have a couple sources, and we pick these for that reason exactly. Which is what oh. every conspiracy theorist says, but, you know, go, <laughs> right. go on, yeah. Zach. I, I would exactly. hope that okay. we are a little bit more thorough than your average conspiracy theorist. Absolutely, absolutely. So the Clinton administration openly spent about $10 billion financing the Yeltsin campaign, as well as installing a campaign manager that was giving weekly uh, updates to the White House. So basically, while he was running the Yeltsin campaign, he definitely had this foreign interest, right? His interest was in the U.S. Sure. Um, The damning events, in my opinion, is what happened in Chechnya at that time. So prior to 1991, Boris Yeltsin's administration was responsible for widespread bombing and destruction in Chechnya. So it was widely believed that almost none of the 500,000 Chechnyans would vote for Yeltsin, right? Sounds Mm. pretty cut and dry. But as the votes were being tallied from Chechnya, something odd happened. Not only did an overwhelming majority of the Chechnyans supposedly vote for Yeltsin, but there was also about a million votes submitted from the region of 500 people. Which, you know, so there's something a little bit fishy going on. At the time, it was all circumstantial. But years later, um, ex-officials from Russia, the U.S., as well as an independent consultant verified that the White House was, at the very least, partially aware of the widespread corruption in favor of their candidate. Sure. So maybe they didn't you know, install all those
0: uh, corrupt you know, things that happened, but mm-hmm. they maybe helped
1: push things in that direction or whatnot, which you know, clearly is corruption at some level. Right, exactly. Just because you weren't the one doing the crime, paying for it is the same, you know, or is not the same, but it definitely is a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you are nodding your Clinton disapproving head, um, you know, thinking like, "Oh yeah, the Clintons, nothing new, right?" This isn't a unique occurrence, and it's definitely not based at all in party lines. Twenty-five years later, a leaked and independently verified White House audit of the CIA showed that over seventy-five million dollars was spent between 1965 and 1975 to directly sway the presidential elections of Italy. Hmm. The following year and under oath, a CIA official confirmed that the U.S. presidents must sign off on all these fraudulent foreign affairs. Mm. So, like I said, before you start picturing me as Alex Jones just shaking a bunch of random papers (laughs) at the camera, I picked both of these examples for two reasons. They, They were verified by multiple sources including under oath. In addition, all the above details come from multiple listed journalistic sources. There is evidence to show this direct election tampering, as in like changing the votes and voting totals to ensure a certain candidate wins. Giving, like we mentioned before, giving financial support to a campaign is one thing, but undercutting the core function of democracy is quite another, at least in my opinion. Right, right. And these are
0: just two examples um, in, in in Russia and Italy to show that obviously corruption like is out there I mean you could also look to like oh you know other countries you know theoretically you know a lot of a lot of rumors swirl um, potentially mm-hmm. trying to push other elections these ones are just a little more substantiated thus you know making
1: crossing the bar to come onto this podcast absolutely yep yeah we only wanted to use the the most cut and dry pieces <laughs>
0: Right, so now we want to look into, you know, why voting matters, what's going on with it, um, you know, what should we be looking for in a good voting system. So I think the first thing to do is maybe to look at kind of the differences and similarities of voting globally. Sure. And we said this this podcast, unfortunately, it was going to be pretty U.S.-centric, and I think it's really worth discussing how much of an anomaly U.S. voting is. So. Okay. The U.S. government, you know, when it was created, it was you know following the will of the people. You had <laughs> the Jeffersonian Jefferson is you know ex president, uh, and he he really was pushing this whole idea like "We the People." We the People mm-hmm. is wording that's used in our you know founding documents. And there's also no ruling family or similar you know specific aristocracy. This is really supposed to be a government and society that is defined by what the people want or you know, at the very beginning what the male white <laughs> landowners wanted. So yeah, exactly. not perfect by any means. But this is something that continues to this day where Dan Carlin, I don't know, Zach, if you've listened to Hardcore History, a podcast oh, yeah. that dives really deep into history. Yeah. Dan Carlin is the, the the host and he's awesome. And he has a side podcast where he t- kind of gives interpretations of Different events, trends in the world today, based on history, and he, you know, went to discuss pretty deeply in one of them about how how much we still follow that "we the people" thing. Mm-hmm. It's basically okay. like political career suicide to oppose a decision being made by the people. Thus, voting is sacred, and we really trust it. And that's not the only thing. There's also just an expansive breadth of voting, like the the number of votes that each person. Okay. Contributes and basically decides for our government is really high in the United States. Yeah, explain that to me. Real yeah, quick. Zach, think back to you—you you voted presumably in 2020, mm-hmm. um, and specifically th- your ballot that you filled out um, about how many total elections and ballot measures, you know, questions that they wanted you to decide. Could you vote mm-hmm.
1: for? I want to say like s- five to seven. Like including the questions, I'm not quite sure. But yeah, I think it was five to seven, somewhere around there. Five to seven, right on. For me, I want to
0: say, especially if you flipped it over and include, I think it was like, 10 or so on the front okay. and on the back it was like 30 more or I don't know, 20 more. Uh, okay. maybe, maybe Minnesota specifically where I'm speaking of, uh, is even, uh, wackier than the rest of the United States. Anyways. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny to compare that to other countries. Australia, for example, I listened to this podcast. I was talking about the history of, of voting and they had to take a moment and to explain to all of their Australian listeners that, Oh, these, these United States ballots are very different. It's not just the president you're voting Mm -hmm. for. It's, you know, the president and it's the congressional representatives. And maybe you have, you know, your state or territory leader, you have city, leaders, mayors, but you also have your city council representatives. You also have school board officials and judges, and you have these state-level ballot proposals. You know, should we legalize marijuana? And you have city-level ballot proposals like, should we fund X, Y, and Z or have our elections like such? And there's mm-hmm. other random government positions, like in some cities, the dog catcher. I, I couldn't tell you why. <laughs> the dog catcher is legitimately on the ballot, on the same ballot as, as the president. Amazing. It shocks me that there's a dog catcher in 2020. What are we <laughs> never anyways? Old school East Coast man. So <laughs> Zach, I want to ask you another question. So yes. off the or, or feel free to estimate or however you want to do this, but about how many in the United States, about how many positions are voted on um and elected? How many elected officials are there <gasps> um, in the government of the United States? That's leaving out us voting for ballot measures and other kind mm-hmm. of,
1: you know, like policy related things. Wow, we're talking like from presidential all the way down to the local level? Yep. Yep. I I'm gonna say two hundred thousand?
0: Well, that's pretty close. Uh someone okay. did an analysis that tried to suss out all of them. And in twenty
1: twelve it was north of five hundred thousand. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah. I thought I was gonna like I thought it was gonna be like just under yeah. two hundred thousand. That's wild
0: yeah it's it's a wild number so you know we vote on a lot of things we really care Mm -hmm. about the vote and the rest of the 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 country or you know the other democracies they absolutely care about their vote but in the united states you know voting is this like extremely important crucial thing that you know a lot depends on
1: yeah so we like like john said we really take voting seriously as as almost like a semi-sacred thing Mm -hmm. almost like this like governmental communion um and, tr- you know, true voting is, like, one of the foundations of any democracy, and the foundation of that is that all votes must be equal,
0: right? Right. This is a similarity across all voting systems across the
1: world. Mm-hmm. There's a, quite a bit of ethical papers talking about the concept of one human equals one vote, right? Yeah. Before civil rights and suffrage, that obviously wasn't true in the U.S. You know, it was white landowning males. Mm-hmm. Um, but now every citizen over the age of 18 gets to vote. And we can say that this, you know, one of age, human equals one vote, makes it sound pretty simple. Like most democracies, however, there's a couple more layers to it. See, this only works if the population is evenly distributed across the country. And we know that's not the case. Mm-hmm. That's why in the US, we have things called congressional districts. Okay. And this is actually part of a concept of government called proportional representation, which is practiced by about 85% of all democracies on earth. If done correctly, it's the most fair way to vote. Basically what you do is try and lay out these even districts across your country. One district might be 100 square miles, One might be only a couple blocks, but they're going to try and get the most even in terms of population and other land assets, things like that. For a U.S.-only tangent, in the States, this proportional representation system is called the Electoral College. If you're sitting here thinking, hey, doesn't everyone say the Electoral College sucks and that it undermines the whole of democracy, I see where you're coming from, and I'll point you in the right direction. Like I said, the Electoral College is actually a pretty fair way to vote. Uh, it divides the U.S. into 435 roughly equal districts, one electoral vote coming from East. No issues so far. Mm-hmm. But almost as an afterthought, the founding fathers threw in a rule that kind of throws all this district balancing out the window. The winner-take-all rule that 48 states have, the only two states that do not have it, is Nebraska and Maine. Mm-hmm. This winner-take-all rule is kind of the the crux of the distinction between how we do proportional representation and how a lot of other countries do it.
0: Right, right. Their their one human to one vote to one representatives
1: is a straighter line than mm-hmm. than it is in the United States. Right. So from an ideal perspective, we're we've got this framework that we can build upon and, and we're doing the right thing, right? We're in the we're pointing in the right direction. Right. So how do we, you know, what are the other steps that we take to guarantee that we're getting a good vote? Right, right, exactly. So there's some criteria that people spell out
0: As your voting system needing to have in order to make sure that that vote is, you know, still useful and maximized to its fullest ability. And one of those is obviously, you know, we're giving, you know, one vote per human that's, you know, Mm -hmm. registered to that area. So there's the whole identity thing, you know, are these the right people? Can you actually get this one vote um, per person? And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is kind of outside the scope, but you you have voter registration that's, you know, online and databases these days. That's, you know, not the the big fish. Uh, Then there's usability. These people need to be able to, you know, interface with the voting system in such a way that they take this intention of I want to vote for, you know, Mr. X. And, uh, you know, they they actually are able to do that. That sounds like such a simple thing, but mm-hmm. being able to translate from intentions to records is something that is non-trivial. So usability is right. huge.
1: Think about taxes. For example, it takes like, there's a whole business based around just like explaining taxes to people. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah definitely. And the, the third piece is a big
0: piece security. So, <laughs> you know, no meddling with the voter counts. Uh, is there any coercion? Hopefully not. Um, are there any incentives to vote a certain way? Hopefully not. Is the ballot secret? Meaning that, you know, Zach, you vote and I can't tell who you voted for your vote definitely gets counted. And you know that and you can be confident in that. And I can be confident that no other votes get counted, but you, your identity is separated from your vote. Then you also in security have this, you know, is there any fear of participation you want this this process to be as as safe and
1: accepting of each you know applicable person absolutely yeah and then another big factor is auditability and big word for saying we being able to recheck the original record and even having like a small sample of the original population of votes statistically speaking usually is enough to ensure that to ensure that we can do any rechecking that we would ever need. Right. But, you know, foreshadowing a little bit, keep this auditability in mind when we start discussing different ways of voting that are not paper. So like digital voting, for example, when you don't have that original record, you never have one besides in ones and zeros. Right,
0: right which can be written over anyways. So those four things of identity, usability, security, auditability are kind of the the big criteria for a good voting system. That being said, there's kind of another one other layer to it that I'd add, and it's just the Mm -hmm. accessibility. So, you know, can all who wish to participate, can they actually do that? Can they participate? Is the the burden low enough such that someone that wants to, you know, has, has just the tiniest inkling that they want to vote can, Can they basically turn that intention into actually making it happen? Are there other barriers in people's lives, time, uh, money, hopefully nothing, in order to vote, et cetera? So those are kind of the the big pieces that a lot of our voting systems have and Mm -hmm. need to maintain or need to continue to improve.
1: So I think it's interesting to look back now, like how we've voted in the past, at least in the U.S., Mm -hmm. just to look at some of the pitfalls that have happened and how we have learned and grown from that. Right. And one of the reasons why this is so important is
0: because voting doesn't happen that often. So we kind of need to look to the past to really have
1: a a sample of of what's possible and what's what's out there. Right. Exactly. Um, So let's start. Right at the beginning of the U.S. You know, we're talking end of the 1700s into, you know, about 1820s. This was the era of the vocal vote, which is, sounds as arcane as it is. Sure. Y- you literally show up at your town's courthouse. And when I say you, only if, again, you're white and male and landowning. Mm-hmm. You come to the town's courthouse. You swear in the Bible that you are who you say you are. And then you call out your vote to the clerk and he writes it down. <laughs> so you're announcing in front of all the other white landowning males in the local township who you are voting for. Right there, That's that secret participation is right out the window, right? Mm-hmm. So we were not doing anything like that. Once all the votes were called in, though, beer began to flow, ev- and everyone basically met up for a large potluck. Uh, want to know what having a party after voting gets you? About an 85% turnout. Wow. Which you could take note of that. Obviously, it sounds like a ton of fun, but it is just a bunch of white landowning males, so not a part of the tradition we would definitely want to bring back. Man, I'd go for a,
0: a post-voting pot, potluck right about now. Unfortunately, right? oh, conditions yeah. are not are not right for
1: that to happen. No, no, they're not. Not not in the Midwest, not in the heartland. Uh, but so, so moving forward from the 1820s to about the 1850s, that's when we first start seeing a paper ballot, and it's literally scraps of paper, name written on the scrap, put into a box, right? Um, a la like, class president style. In the mid-1800s, we started seeing the political parties in the U.S. get a little bit sneakier. They began to publish these standard tickets in the newspaper that instead of like r- using your own paper, you could actually get this slip from the newspaper hmm. and submit it in. What political parties started doing is they were actually filling them, they were actually printing them already filled out. Oh, wow. Essentially saying that, hey, you wanna vote Republican, you wanna vote Democrat, take the Democrat ticket and we'll vote Democrat for you, <laughs> which is, ugh. yeah, yikes. In the 1850s, we start using what we call basically like the Australian vote or like the Queensland vote. Um, and that is essentially just standardization of these ballots, right?
0: Right, right. So it's kind of taking the the paper out of the newspaper, and they said we'll just we'll just yeah. take care of the printing and not have anyone bias towards a certain candidate. Yes, yes. Government
1: printing. Yes, that's. We'll make it simpler. Yeah. Okay. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Another thing was the you know the secret part of the ballot, like like we were saying before, you're either. Either you're declaring vocally in front of the entire town who you're voting for, or at the very least, people can watch you come up and put your name into one ballot box or the other, right? Right. So with this new voting style, we started to separate that so you could vote without prying eyes. Or I love the idea of if people are, you know, taking their own scrap of paper
0: and writing down, you know, Thomas Jefferson or whoever. <laughs> someone can you know, take that when they're counting the votes, they can say like, ah, oh, I, I recognize his handwriting. This is definitely, uh, yeah. you know, Jared's chicken scratch. Like, you uh, <laughs> voted for Thomas Jefferson again. What a, what a goon. Like, you know, there's just kind of like weird ways that it's hard to have the secret ballot part that yes. like that level of security. Yeah, exactly. Jared, that's such a Jared thing to do. <laughs> Very Jared. <laughs> so, so fast forward just a little bit further uh, in the yes. 1860s, this is kind of in the United States, one of the first. Big wars um, that happened, and that brought up the debate of absentee ballots. So a lot of people fighting in the war are, you know, white male landowners, uh, mm-hmm. but they also know how to shoot guns apparently. So they are off um, at war. So they kind of have this barrier to vote and what's really interesting in the eight in 1860 specifically, the Republican party had just gained control of president think Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Congress and many state Congresses too. Okay. So they were trying to, you know, hold on to their control a little bit and they, uh, assumed correctly that soldiers leaned Republican, that basically they wanted the, the soldiers to vote. Uh, you know, it was basically politicized from, from that point that, uh, you know, what should happen with absentee ballots because of course the Democrats opposed, uh, getting the soldiers to vote. So there was Mm -hmm. a lot of issue there. And what ended up happening is the states decided, so instead of like a national edict that, you know, uh, soldiers could or couldn't vote with this absentee ballot system, some way to, you know, get votes from the, the war fields, uh, each state, um, that had a Republican-led Congress. They passed and created the first widespread mail-in absentee ballot system. Oh wow! So they could basically vote by mail or carrier pigeon, pony express, whatever it was at that time. Um, that yeah. was finally approved, and it was very limited because it was you know a war, and it was just this tiny group of soldiers. But it was
1: you know a useful revolution in kind of allowing mm-hmm. remote voting. Yeah. It's funny to see. We're kind of talking about the same mail-in issue today and the parties are completely flipped. Mm-hmm. Keep that in mind. Next time you think that like your party is special or your party is doing something new, they trade off quite a bit. There's a lot of, there's a lot of playing games from both sides,
0: especially in uh 1930s or whenever they actually flipped. But yes, yes,
1: yes. So 1880s, the U S starts to adopt this Australian ballot and spreads like wildfire. Uh, Basically, it's an ex- it's extremely clear that the standard ballot is the best way to cut down on this gray area of fraud like the already filled out ballots.
0: Yeah, I want to say in like 1892, just like shortly after the U.S. tried this ballot. I think there mm-hmm. was like a national edict that was like, everybody needs to adopt this. Every state has to do paper balloting. It is mm-hmm. it is the way of the future. We need to make this happen.
1: Yeah. Interesting note to to bring up later how you know the federal government is kind of like in some ways saying how the states need to conduct an election in some ways they're not at all right right right. yeah this is ultimately still a state's decision so uh 19 we're getting into the the 1900s now Mm -hmm. like early 1910s and on just like everywhere else the 1900s was filled with these mechanical contraptions that would just shock even the most experienced modern day mechanics absolutely and the voting machine was no different These big monoliths essentially were stationed at local street corners during election season. And these machines were about the size of a vending machine. They were not small. No one was running away with these things. Right. And these machines
0: could, you know, reliably count and do stuff with, you know, very basic numbers, let's say. So that's why they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, why do the paper ballots? Let's basically take the paper ballots and put
1: them into a giant 800 pound machine. Right. Something that's extremely precise, right? We're not gonna be throwing out any votes because we're gonna essentially control the voting process sure. completely. Yep. Yeah. And so an individual would open up the panel, which reveals a wall of switches that could be toggled to point for one candidate or the other hmm. once the section the selections were made and the door was closed, the machine would then tally all the results of that voter. This is kind of like the first time we're seeing technology. Maybe take a misstep. You know, these machines were extremely safe and robust, but there definitely was not that original vote, quote unquote, that original ballot.
0: Yeah. And it also introduces just a bunch of complexity. Like, you know, how yeah. long would it take you to
1: understand what the heck that machine is actually doing? Uh, yeah. There was, a, I read an article from uh, a historian, I believe from Michigan, and he said that taking apart one of these voting machines, it uh, had more parts than the modern day automobile which is wow that's <laughs> wild insane. yeah yeah
0: right on so fast forwarding just a little bit further the absentee ballot or voting gets you know reconsidered of course in the wartime purview so in world war 1 and primarily world war 2 in this case um the 1942 elections and the 1944 US elections there were many soldiers abroad not even just in you know the united states fighting a civil war they're across you know th- the the world mm-hmm. so yeah. the democrats in the situation they supported and republicans opposed soldier absentee ballots and eventually the result was that uh, the soldiers were allowed to vote, so they okay. they expand and they kind of you know re-solidify soldiers being able to do absentee ballot voting across the nation, not just the northern states that had you know Republican led majorities. Gotcha. Okay. And then going a little bit further in the 1950s through like the 1970s, uh, which is once again kind of marked by wars, so Korea, Korean War, Vietnam Wars, and also marked by civil rights movement. You mentioned it before, where yeah you know, one human, one vote, there's a big push for just making sure that everyone should or could actually vote. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's many uh, soldiers abroad due to those wars, but there are actually a lot of non-soldier U.S. citizens of, you know, voting age, etc., that were living abroad, but they just okay. couldn't vote. You know, there's, there's no system for them to do that. So Congress during this time, they actually pass a law to force states to allow these expatriated citizens to vote, which Mm -hmm. expands that kind
1: of absentee system a little bit more, a little bit more. Right. Yeah. Again, like the federal government laying down the law and the states having to enact it. Right. Mm -hmm. Having to kind of implement that that solution. Right. We kind of move up to the era of, you know, we are coming back to paper ballots, but we're using some computation and machining in there. Right. Yeah. yeah so yeah. in the, in the 1960s, we come out with the paper or the punch card mm-hmm. rather. If you're our age, you may not know what these are, but ask your parents. And if any of them was in the technolo- the technical fields in college, I'm sure they know exactly the, uh, the nightmare that is punch cards. Right. Right. They used to, they used to use them to like
0: program computers and mm-hmm. they apparently yeah. use them to vote as
1: well. Right. Yeah, so essentially think of an index card with a bunch of little holes punched in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that's essentially like part of a code and you're actually putting it in or yeah, you're putting it into the this mechanical computer. It's reading that that those holes as like ones and zeros essentially. Yeah. Um a little more complicated than that, but and then spitting out an input on the other end. Yeah, that was, you know, elite technology back in the day, which is mm-hmm. crazy to think. We move forward to this era of scantrons which is what you know kind of we're starting to get modern day right sure um basically instead of punch cards someone just fills out a little bubble on a sheet of paper and an op there's an optical reader rather than a mechanical reader Mm -hmm. um it's much more reliable than these punch cards right a
0: camera is looking at it and says is this hole dark or is this Mm hole, you know light and and unfilled
1: simple correct yep and that's i know that's how i voted absentee uh Yep. this election I, I would assume that the vast majority of the US also voted that way whether it's it was in person at a poll mm-hmm. or if it was absentee
0: yeah 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 definitely we'll, we'll talk about like what what is the options today but Scantron mm-hmm. even introduced in the 1970s was was very prevalent uh, in 2020 right. so fast forwarding just a little bit further in the 1980s and 1990s kind of still on this absentee ballot beat that I've got going on here they mm-hmm. started to continue to expand that so uh, there became the first states to pass no-excuse absentee ballot systems. So rather than being, okay. you know, like a soldier in a war-torn area or just being an, an expat abroad, you know, Zach, you in certain states could just sign up and say, like, yes, uh, I live in, mm-hmm. I think, Oregon, might have been the first one, and I want an absentee ballot system mailed to me so I can vote from home. Mm-hmm. So that was yeah. the first really kind of, like, system of, of you know, in- in-state absentee mail-in voting, which is obviously a huge thing, was a huge thing in 2020
1: and may continue to be as we move on. Absolutely. Yeah. I could see that being one of those things we've talked about so many times, like what is going to stick from COVID? And Mm -hmm. I can totally see mail-in ballots totally sticking. Okay. So let's talk about like how people were here today. How do people, how do most people vote? So number one, most obvious in person. It's a system everyone knows and maybe some people love. <laughs> um, but so the the situation with this is that the machine and the process like completely varies. Uh, it is run at like the state and county levels, even. Right. So, right. yeah. So you could be counting votes different, you know, between Minnesota and Wisconsin, for example, They're, they could be totally counted differently and there's no ordinance to say that they should even be counted the same right you and i might have both filled out scantron you know filled in the bubbles and a machine Mm -hmm.
0: you know read it in front of us but in some states they still had like you know certain types of machines or still had uh punch cards punch cards still existed not in 2020 but in in (laughs) 2000 they definitely existed what can you tell me about that
1: yeah yeah so so this is kind of where i i said that the house of punch cards, I'll say, definitely crumbled. Um, they were tried, in, it was a tried and true method, but in 2000, so that was the Bush Gore election, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. There was an issue with hanging chats. Okay. Okay. What a hanging chat is, if you have no idea, I had no idea either until I looked into it. Um, a, think about using a hole punch on a sheet of paper mm-hmm. and think about the hole punch being dull, right? You were like, You look down and that little punched out circle that was supposed to come with it is still like hanging on by a thread. So instead of cutting like 360 degrees, it might have cut
0: like 350. And there's just kind of this little dangling uh, Mm -hmm.
1: circle that is not completely disconnected. Exactly. Yeah. When it's arts and crafts, it's like lovable. Like, oh, you know, happy little accidents when it's your voting card. Very different. Very, very mm-hmm. different, mm-hmm. and and when the vote is close, yes, when the vote is, and so that was the issue in Florida in the year two thousand. There was an issue with some of the punch uh, machines, essentially, and so as these punch cards are being tallied, there was a huge discrepancy on whether a vote w- went one way or whether a vote went the other
0: way. Right, and this is really important because in Florida, Florida, you know, winner take all, it mm-hmm. actually was going to decide the presidency. You know, if mm-hmm. if Gore won Florida, then he would be president. If if uh, Bush won Florida, he would become president. So it was absolutely pivotal. And I want to say they were within like less than a thousand votes
1: between uh, indifference between the two candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really close. Yeah. But so anyways, there's some huge limitations to having like these very antiquated systems that just lag behind some states. There, there's no real impetus for states to have to upgrade. Mm-hmm. This was one of the times, like we'd mentioned in the past, that the federal government had to step in and say, you got to get your act together, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2002, they actually put out a an act to fund certain states that needed... To build or bring up to date their voting system so that they could have a more reliable vote, basically right, right
0: and I think they've continued to do similar stuff with adding paper trails to other states, other states that were mm-hmm. using you know digital only the the bits that you were talking about and feel free to go deeper in this later if you so choose. but they you know funded them to go further. So mm-hmm. the second type of voting is this remote voting and right you know, you know, this primarily as that, you know, mail-in system, that's the main remote voting system. And this is a great system, uh, in, in many people's eyes In some people's it's questionable. And it really, it has a lot of organizational burden. You know, there's a lot of mail being sent out and a lot of systems that you have to trust. There's some slight, you know, secrecy issues where technically it's harder to separate your signature that's on the envelope for the mail-in ballot from the ballot. So someone could maybe, if things were wrong, mm-hmm. uh, figure out, you know, who you voted for. And there's mm-hmm. slight security issues. You know, you're not doing it all in person and putting the vote in a locked down voting machine yourself. Instead, it's going through the mail and going through some other system. So there's some mm-hmm. some slight issues. So there's room for improvement between those two options. Absolutely, yeah. But those are the two main options. There's also actually kind of a ton of other options for, you know, outlier groups. So okay. uh, I was surprised to hear that Washington state um, and a couple other states, they actually hold many elections entirely via vote by, by mail in 2005. Oh wow! And okay. and I'm surprised by that. You might be surprised to hear that there's other tons of of niche ways uh, that voting is offered in the United States, at least. Probably other countries as well. Actually, that we'll we'll touch on. So, okay, one way is you can fax in your votes. Uh, disabled right. voters in Louisiana, Utah. This is applicable. Military citizens and other military and overseas citizens in a bunch of states can fax in, which is kind of antiquated, but apparently reliable
1: enough for these small pockets. of of voters in certain states. Yeah, I would love to see why Louisiana and Utah, because those could not be two different states (laughs) or more different states. Yeah, uh, maybe they just love fax machines. Couldn't tell you. (laughs) Then you can also
0: email in your ballot in, in 23 U.S. states, mostly for military and overseas citizens. You can just email it in through, you know, certain email addresses or whatnot. In about four states, they actually have a website portal. I love how governments oh, wow. talk about uh, technology like consumer type technology a website <laughs> portal is basically just a website where you can log yeah. in and you know have your specific thing but there's they gotta use the word portal anyways yeah. that's mainly for military and overseas citizens so it's still kind of uh, tight to that you know traditional absentee ballot group and There's some other systems. So mobile app in 2018, uh, in West Virginia only, they trialed for disabled and overseas military citizens to be able to vote via mobile app, uh, which included a blockchain system, which we'll, we'll get into a little bit. Um, they did not renew this, uh, system for
1: 2020 for various reasons. Okay. So they did use, they did actually use it for like the 2018 congressional
0: uh, yes, I think they did okay. use it for the congressional. They it was you know okay. limited. It's basically piloting. All this technology right. just needs right. to be piloted before it's rolled out in full, which is actually brings us to Estonia, which has okay. a really fascinating story. And you basically have to talk about Estonia if you talk about uh, voting technology. This is like a you know one million citizen or eligible voter country in Europe, and it's very tech forward government. Uh, each each person has a national identification card with an electronic password and authentication built into it, something that the U.S. probably would Lord, never do. Well, yeah. but, but they have this, so they you know, have the identity problem kind of solved solve these sweet ID cards. And starting, I say, like in early 2000, uh, congressional people were voting via the internet for congressional things, you know, like, oh, I, I'm out of town, I need to vote on something. And they basically took that internet system and they just continued to grow it Each year such that uh, roughly 50% of the voters are now using this like internet voting system in I think 2019 was the last time they had an election, which is working over the internet. It's kind of like that website portal, but it's it's even more, you know, fancy and secure than, you know, what we can spin up because we don't have these national ID cards. Mm -hmm. And what's useful to say about it is, you know, this is very much an outlier group. It's just Estonia. It's a small country. And. The system is probably flawed Uh, security researchers you know look (laughs) at it frequently and they say like ah like other big countries other really important elections should not adopt this system because of x y and z but maybe it's secure enough for them
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yep and there's other countries that have dabbled in this kind of you know internet voting space with australia armenia france india mexico switzerland canada so there's countries that have that are kind of thinking about this space, but I don't, other than Estonia, very few of those countries have
1: adopted something widespread and it's stuck. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of them, like you mentioned, have kind of tried it out and not renewed. Right. Right. For various reasons. So there's a lot of
0: niche ways people can vote. They're just not really, you know, adopted widespread. So, you know, one of the things that might need to happen is just the technology needs to get better. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's funny, Zach, we were talking about this, um, a while back where we were saying that there aren't that many technology groups in this space. There are a couple yes. that are sprinkled in, but they're not nearly as prominent and making big progress, raising big money, trying things out. There's just a couple. And I think it's worth going through those, those few. Yep. So one of the big ones, and actually the people that primarily make that website portal voting method, um, yes. is Democracy Live!, they're very established uh, provider of these online voting services, but they're primarily focused on just the small pockets of people. You know, much like mm-hmm. Estonia isn't a very big country, so maybe, you know, a big foreign power meddling in their election isn't a big deal. If you're just, you know, securing the vote of the uniformed overseas or other
1: like tiny small groups, maybe Democracy Live! is secure enough. Right. And that's that's what I've seen from other security experts kind of saying like, and there's because it's such a small fraction of the vote, that that motive to hack it or, or mm-hmm. create fraudulent votes in that space is small, right? Because there's very limited impact.
0: Right, right. And I think for that reason, they're also not a big company that's really looking to innovate a ton. I think they're fine. You know, They're probably trying to grow uh, their mm. population sizes that they take voting from, but it's not like they're trying to go for the home run hit. Someone that right. is trying to go for the home run hit is a company called Votes. And honestly, they're just kind of like the leading blockchain voting company, this blockchain mm-hmm. word again. There's other blockchain voting companies and efforts and got the number of papers out there that discuss <laughs> a theoretical way
1: to do blockchain voting is incredible. It's John, I'm going to be honest with you, for that exact reason, I did not type blockchain in when we were doing our research this year yeah. or this, uh, this week. Honestly, I saved
0: it kind of to the end where... You know, I heard plenty of people give thoughts on it, but I was like, okay, I better do my own deep dive on blockchain and see what it's like really all about. And just, just for clarity, I don't think we've ever talked about blockchain. It's not the super well-known technology. If you've heard of Bitcoin, this is the backbone of Bitcoin. In short, it's basically like an Excel spreadsheet or maybe a a Google doc spreadsheet that everyone can share at once. And people are debating Mm -hmm. as to like, you can never edit a line above, but you can always write to the next line and people basically prove that or earn the right to write the next line of the blockchain, which Mm -hmm. comes with a bunch of things. So what you can do is you can, you know, put a vote in one of these rows, the blockchain. And then once a couple new rows of this Excel spreadsheet are are down, you can never edit the ones above them. Those ones cannot be edited at all. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. And not only is that like you can't edit it, but it's because it's that like public ledger. There is that like kind of public incentive. Yes. Uh, there, there's, there's that watchful eye. Yeah, right? yeah, Zach, yeah. Like
0: if you were, say, Democracy Live and you were collecting these votes, I, I can't really watch you count them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I trust Democracy Live. There's probably people that audit their systems, et cetera. But like the average Joe person cannot, you know, look in and see what's going on. Where blockchain can do that. And this mm-hmm. this Votes, V-O-A-T-Z, was the company that was used in that 2018 West Virginia election that wasn't mm-hmm. renewed after security researchers and you know 2019 2020 said said no dice um to -hmm. the security of that so that's still an effort there's still blockchain people trying to make something work in that space but there are Mm -hmm. gaps kind of before and after the blockchain process that are vulnerable and and that brings us to darpa uh darpa is a u.s government um advanced research agency of some sort and Mm -hmm. it's hilarious how they talk about their um their voting project. In short, what they're trying to do is they are trying to make ultra secure hardware, uh, you know, not the software, the blockchain thing is like software. They're like, we're not going to deal with that. We just need to make sure that our hardware is secure so that, you know, people that are, you know, in a foreign country trying to meddle in our election actually can't, you know, they're making very smart, uh, CPUs, computer systems um to make this happen and Mm -hmm. the reason why they are in the voting space is because they just want a proving ground that is visible you know and very very valued so they're saying like oh we'll we'll make a secure voting system when we you know finally develop this ultra secure hardware and we'll prove to you that yeah this you know this is possible because of the hardware so, okay. it's it's kind of a weird situation, and I yeah. looked into some of their work, and it doesn't seem like they're spending a ton of money funding groups to try and,
1: you know, bring some of these parts of the hardware to life, but maybe it's going to happen. Are they thinking of almost going back to, like, the voting booth, or the, the like, that monolithic voting <laughs> machine, like we were talking about? Almost like a digital version of that, or? I mean, you could argue that a
0: computer chip is a digital version of that already, so <laughs> yeah. I kind of don't think so, but they're... I don't know. I don't know exactly what architectures they're okay. thinking about. Maybe they're basically yes. trying to make digital paper, which would be hilarious and oddly effective. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know exactly. Obviously, DARPA is pretty tight-lipped, so I'm not sure yes. uh, what they've released. And I definitely don't know what is happening for their projects. Mm-hmm. It's all aliens. Just It's all aliens. It's all aliens. Yeah. <laughs> So that, that brings us to, you know, that was the efforts for, like, where things might be kind of pushing forward in the next few years, talking about votes, DARPA, and Democracy Live. Now let's try to talk about, you know, where we think the space is actually going. One of the things that
1: I think we kind of came to the conclusion of, John, is that especially with this topic, predicting the, the tomorrow, predicting the future in the next 20 years is going to be really tough. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. There's just a few
0: factors, I think, that are that are worth highlighting before we get into some kind of projections as to what things might be. First mm-hmm. of all, like security. Security was one of those, you know, four pillars, four, four criteria for good voting— It's not a destination. It's one of those, like, you know, continuous journeys. Basically, threats are unpredictable, and, you know, one of the best ways to fight a threat is to have been owned by that threat, pwned, if you will, and then (laughs) figure out, okay, this is what happened. We need to cover, you know, this whole—it's kind of like a -a
1: whack-a-mole situation of sorts. Right, and I kind of think that's why you, you know, there's that— Uh, there's always that quintessential story of like the black hat hacker coming over to the, the governmental side. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. But that, that, it doesn't work that way. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It doesn't work that way. Anyway. So because security is so hard to predict, it's pretty hard to, you know, understand how, how we will accept the security of these systems. Right. Another piece is just this idea that this is very much an area, election voting, where we're trying to move it still from analog to digital, So, you know, a lot of those analog to digital transitions happened, Zach, when you and I were in elementary school, like these days, a lot of these big tech transitions are jumps from digital to better digital or from, you know, biological to better biological. So honestly, we, you and I are pretty inexperienced here and I, I don't think I gave it much credit, but I think the
1: analog to digital jump is just hard to really figure out what's going on. Right. Yeah. I think if you want to peek into what that transition is, talk to, again, like talk to your parents, talk to someone who is, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old, because they've lived definitely like right in the heyday of that stage. Definitely. Where they, I can guarantee, were using a typewriter for the most of their adolescent to adult life. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until then that all of a sudden, that digital switch happened
0: right and who could have predicted what you can do with a computer keyboard instead of a digital typewriter you know yeah.
1: they're yeah. they're the same thing but they're not another thing with voting is that it's especially you know in 2020 especially during this election it can be very politicized
0: mm-hmm.
1: we're you know when that happens we're just not thinking as you know very clear as a society and that often dictates what happens with technology right sorry i have the podcast um, so, you know, you have to look at what the state of things are today and look at how we're viewing that technology to even have an idea of like how we're going to move forward with it. Right. It may, it may just be because of the political headbutting. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is nothing
0: new, obviously for the topic because every war, you know, had an election mm-hmm. during it and, and there was fierce debate as we, as we covered before another just really interesting piece that makes this really tough and we talked about this too is that voting is so infrequent. You know, in the next 20 years we'll have we've got 5 US presidential elections and thankfully across the world we're going to have many more elections, but there aren't that many times to try out a new technology and even fewer mm-hmm. times to try out a new technology, fail, learn from it and <laughs> go back to a new type of technology. So yeah, it's just tough to figure out what's really going to happen. Yeah, it's really tough when that price of failure too is like
1: it, it's it is very high.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, which is why yeah. you see like you know these teeny little pilots that don't really amount to too much. Um, that's kind of our our testing ground currently. So mm-hmm. pivoting from those kind of trends that make it tough to figure out what's going on, let's give our best guesses, Zach. You know, let's yeah. let's bring it to five futures. <laughs> what do we think? Uh, are some actual possible situations for tomorrow when it comes
1: to voting technology. I'll fire up number one right away, and that is a possible future of federalizing the election. So kind of like we talked about up top, there is this unique situation where the federal government both lays down laws, but it is up to the states to implement those laws, even when it's it's around the election, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know looking at the 2020 election, this was the first election that I really paid attention to. If you, if we can have like the vulnerability corner for a second in the 2012 and 2016 elections, I was either too immature or honestly way too privileged, um, to really pay attention and to watch a ton of coverage on them. The fact that I'm, I was even able to have the thought at 18 years old, like, nah, none of this stuff is really going to affect me. Is extremely telling of the community I grew up in. Yeah. Um, no, that resonates, and you know, yeah, absolutely. admirable for you to to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, hopefully, yeah, I'm not the only one that thinks that. And like, uh, but so, anyways, this election, I really tried my best to like completely do a 180 and soak up literally everything that I could about the election, media coverage, articles, snippets, everything. And one of the things that struck me was. As I'm watching this election unfold, is that even though we're electing a federal position, the president of the United States, the logistical running of the election is the sole responsibility of the states. This sounds odd, but it's actually very much intentional by the founding fathers. They were very, they were specific that they wanted these federal departments only for things that were extremely necessary. Mm. I mean, just, just think about the name that we have. It's the United States of America. We're not the Republic of America, which is a distinction that I've never even thought about before. Oh, yeah. But we are a federal government where the, you know, a republic is where the federal government is typically very powerful. And the states, if they exist, are relatively weak. They're local businesses, usually. We specifically created a union of states. A, you know, this union, the federal government was created only to handle the things that individual states can't, mm-hmm. like uh, foreign relations and military the you know having a federal military is important because fifty different militaries trying to fight one war together is a logistical nightmare, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. This defense concept is kind of why I think that moving towards a federal the federalization of the presidential vote is something, at the very least, we should think about. Um, I think increasingly it should be up to the federal government to be responsible for a safe election, not just the states. Hmm. So, you know, for example, when we have these bad actors that are on the stage or on the level of other, you know, worldwide powers like Russia, like China, like big entities like that, it's tough to say Alabama defend against the whole of China. Right. And so I really think that we should maybe look towards having one system across all 50 states that's implemented at a federal level that shores up your number of vulnerabilities because all these states aren't voting differently. We can maybe have more incremental improvement Um, like we're seeing in some other countries, like Estonia, for example, right? They're making small incremental improvements down this digital line. And so this is different from, you know, before a lot
0: of the, you know, edicts from the top, uh, as far as, you know, how election was going to be held is basically like, don't hold it this way, you know, get rid Mm -hmm. of those hanging chad, punch-ballot things, get rid of those yes. you know, paperless uh, touchscreen devices. And mm-hmm. this, you're, you're kind of proposing that they would say, like, this is how you should run your election. You think that this is so important, and maybe there's still some interpretation by the states, but you think that, you know, at some level, the federal government should step in and maybe at least fight the kind of, like,
1: maybe the, the cyber defense. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they dictate at yeah, least maybe. one side of it.
0: Is, is that For kind sure. of your thought? Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, that, that really runs a whole spectrum from the federal government fully taking over like the polling booths and like the ground the boots on the ground things like that mm-hmm. to like you said providing a more unified you know maybe cybersecurity front mm-hmm. right so can the states can act in this incubator yeah that's interesting obviously it's kind of leveraging a lot you know it's it's kind of like a
0: winner take all yeah. system at some at some point where you know are should everyone be under one system like maybe it's needed maybe it's worthwhile right yeah 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 so that's kind of like one possible thing i want to cross cut that with some ways in my mind there's kind of four pathways that we might get this online remote voting for everybody and okay. a lot of those those four ways basically align with like each of those companies we called out in the today section so for sure so if darpa gets their way if they make this ultra secure technology i basically think of this as the hardware route mm-hmm. um you're going to have you know the defense or the government, they, they have these massive use cases for having these like, you know, extremely face meltingly secure information systems. That's super important to them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, voting is just this testing ground in their mind. I could see them actually putting a ton of money into this ultra secure hardware system. And I don't know enough about it or enough about really these vulnerabilities throughout the system. Mm But I could see that uh, if DARPA has their way and they make some crazy advancements in this hardware firmware space, they could actually make a system that you know piecing every you know advanced technology we have together could maybe uh, you know be safe enough and check all the boxes for yeah. online remote voting for everybody. Yeah, this just might be DARPA putting a Faraday cage on every little piece of equipment, but yeah. <laughs> honestly, maybe. Faraday cage basically <laughs> blocking um, a computer from the outside world's yes. wavelengths, et cetera. I put yes. this at like less than 5%. Like there's a chance, but it's it's pretty slim. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with you, yeah. The, the flip side of that coin is the software only side. This is kind of the votes that blockchain company, blockchain very much a, a uh, advancement in the software side. And honestly, <laughs> like... We're going to need a couple more of those blockchain level advancements. Uh, you know, there's sure. there's more silver bullets that we would need. It's amazing what software by itself can do, mm. but we need to make some crazy advancements in order to get rid of these current vulnerabilities that seem to be hardware or firmware or other right. issues that we'll, we'll talk about. So right. I'm also given this kind of like less than 5% chance that the blockchain community, you know, finds some silver bullet or or three uh, to okay. to make that solution work. The third one, the third possible route, I say, is the democracy live route. And this is actually very similar to Estonia's, where Estonia, they started this pursuit of Internet voting like two decades ago. Okay, They've just slowly built it out. And two decades ago, it was it was used by just some p- politicians to vote for, you know, congressional things. And then in mm-hmm. 2005, I want to say it was the first time. And I want to say it was like 1% or 2% of the voters actually use the internet voting. Now we're up to like 50% of the the voters okay. using the internet voting in Estonia. So I could see Democracy Live! just slowly expanding mm-hmm. what people are
1: allowed to you know, vote in their website online portals. And so was that like that 1% versus that 50% was that, um, they like only 1% could do that voting. They only had the capacity for 1% or was it that like they kind of grew over time? Great distinction. No, uh, yeah. I think they opened it up to everyone right away. Estonia. Okay. So that's, that is different
0: from what democracy live, democracy live and these website portals. They're a very yeah. finite, you know, number of people type of person that can vote via that system. So, there's important distinctions there and Mm -hmm. you know it's what's tricky about this is i don't know this gradual growth would have to be so it'd be like hiding in plain sight like if there are vulnerabilities in the democracy live system and the population that's using the system grows pretty big then i think you would kind of just have to hope that no one cares enough or sees what the the vulnerabilities in the system are so for that reason i think that's pretty slim chance but it's, it's crazy what
1: gradual growth can, can give you right there. And I almost worry that there's like that tipping point or threshold, right? We're like, yeah, this, mm-hmm. this voting style isn't significant until it is. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then we're answering for it. Issues, issues are abound.
0: So mm-hmm. those are the three companies I actually listed off. in today there was a fourth, um, kind of pathway I listed in, in my mind and it's, it's going the the black Swan route where Black Swan is just this, you know, very unlikely event. And you could, you you should argue that, you know, this COVID pandemic is a black swan and Mm -hmm. it didn't even push us into this, you know, online remote voting for all, despite basically every other aspect that we could put online remote we did in our society across the world. so. Mm I don't know what you're looking at, but you're looking at something that is, you know, a COVID pandemic on steroids that really pushes us to like have to hmm. be online remote. Um, yeah. Not sure what that looks like. It could be a crazy, yeah. crazy pandemic. It could be something that uh, I have a failure to imagine at this moment. Right. And what that actually might mean is, is maybe it, it's changing our expectations as voting societies, the United States and other countries, et cetera, to accept just different priorities in voting maybe the secret ballot isn't a thing and, and maybe that pushes us to adopt some systems this is really tough because you know we don't like changing our perspectives but obviously you know this pandemic changed our perspective so black swans mm-hmm. can do some crazy things i'm putting this at like 1 in a million chance of happening but <laughs> you can't rule it out
1: right right yeah and like speaking of expectations another future that i wanted to talk about was yeah. like the expectation of voter turnout Like right now in the U.S., I mentioned that we we're voting near record numbers in the twenty twenty election. That's in like the mid sixties. Mid sixties record numbers. Yeah, mid sixty percent. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, just think about that, right? Of the voting population in the U.S., even during record elections, forty percent are not voicing their opinion. Right. There is that classic situation
0: where it's the uh, the non voting population. uh, If they would have voted for Mickey
1: Mouse, Mickey Mouse would have become president. Yep, exactly. i I remember that always coming up. Yeah, um, in you know in a, in a democracy, ideally higher turnout equals better representation. But like you mentioned, if if only sixty percent of the population is voting, the winning candidate could theoretically represent like twenty five to thirty percent of the overall population. So more voting is definitely better. How do we guarantee that though? There's there's two routes. There's compulsory voting, which actually several countries do. Hmm. Uh, Australia, Belgium, and Brazil being the biggest ones, and they are essentially writing like misdemeanor tickets for not voting. Okay. So, for example, like in Brazil, the cost of that ticket is about a dollar, Uh-oh. a U.S. dollar. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's very very low. Do they get above sixty five percent? They used to. Ah. The yeah. The issue being is that. All three of these countries actually stopped collecting these missed voting tickets, right? They don't collect on these misdemeanors. Hmm. Um, they've been doing that, like, gradually over the past 10 years. And right along with that trend, the percentage of voters has dropped to about 65 to 70%. Hmm. So not much higher than, like, a non-compulsory strong election. Okay, And there were several studies to show in these countries that, like, while there was definitely higher turnout, the quality of the votes... Was was poor. And what I mean by that is essentially people are coming and just voting because they have to. Uh. Uh, For example, the study that I'm referencing, they actually talk to people um, about a week after the election and ask them who they voted for. And in these countries where compulsory where there is compulsory voting, like 30 to 35 percent of the people had no idea who they had voted for, even for like the president, like
0: the the you know that's something that like right. if you're voting for the judges on the back or really confusing right.
1: wording, you might have forgotten. But these were like I don't know that was my that was my perception. Yeah, and the, the point <laughs> being that like they literally like did not do their they didn't do the reading, they didn't do the research. They went in, they voted, they walked out. Mm-hmm. You know because they had to to avoid that ticket. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure if compulsory voting's the right direction. We can also make voting easier which is what India is doing. Um, In India, the voting turnout is very much based on class lines. So the winner is only representing the interests of a select class, which is almost always one of the upper classes. So in India, they made the decision to pursue making voting much easier with mobile apps. Their goal was to get above like a 90% voting turnout Hmm. however when India was pressed about the security concerns over the electronic method like we've been talking about this entire episode the Indian government basically rolled its eyes and their stance was that even if there is some kind of fraud the increase in voting will be much more powerful than that relative minority that will be fraudulent right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the problem here is like that just assumes that fraud is completely random that it's like just spread over all different directions and all different people yeah and that's just false right like in, in this case, in, you know, making a fraudulent election on these mobile apps, it's essentially a hack, right? And to do that, a hack like that, that in that intel costs money. So if all the fraud is coming from the wealthy echelon, suddenly this small, quote-unquote, small minority of fraudulence becomes a huge problem.
0: Hey, I don't know. You might be underselling the uh, the poor black hat uh hackers <laughs> that are also in the space trying to trying to
1: make something happen. Yeah. Taking down the, the wealthy. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. it's a give and take. Come on. They they bounce each other out. I'm still <laughs> waiting for my student loans to be deleted. Anytime now. Anytime now. <laughs> but John, you got another you got another future for us? Yeah. So
0: I think the most likely future of of this is the last future. It's kind of the fifth future. It's kind of not, but is just embracing the low tech, you know, we started doing paper ballots in the 1800s and honestly like our current paper ballot system is pretty close to that 1950s Australian or, or whatever Queens, Mm -hmm. Queensland uh, ballot uh, that you discussed. And it's just, it's, it's kind of a laborious process. There's a lot of friction um, Mm -hmm. to, you know, voting with paper, either via mail or, or in person. Right. But I think it's something that, you know, we might just need to, sacrifice that burden. Uh, Basically, you know, maybe what we need to do in the next 20 years, you might see a push to build more trust in the voting system, whether we need Mm -hmm. it or not. Um, But that might mean pushing everything back to a paper backbone. There's still probably basic computers that are counting and maybe helping you fill out your ballot so that you don't write lizard people on your ballot and make it very confusing or have the equivalent of a a hanging Chad on a Scantron. So you know, there's computers that are in the process, but I think that we might just stick with paper and be fine with it.
1: Right. And and there will be those incremental changes, right? Getting better at the logistical side, getting better at uh, distributing ballots, getting better at getting them back and getting them to a, a polling place right. doing the counting. But the paper ballot does really check off everything that we've talked about. In fact, like looking back at the 2020 election where a vast majority of people did vote with this, you know, more low tech Process, mm-hmm. even though there was you know this swirl of worry about fraudulence and people not getting in votes and uh, misinformation and votes not showing up where they should be, several government officials have said that this has been hands down the most secure election that we have ever had. Yeah,
0: I know. A group at the Department of Homeland Security in the United States they came out with a statement saying like this, you know was one of the best, and mm-hmm. we expect to be fired for it, because that's how this works, <laughs> but yes. we it must be known. So, you know, that's a pretty strong statement. Uh, I can't claim to know all of the pol- politicking behind that, but paper works. Paper works well. Right. Absolutely. Hey, everybody. A quick update. So, at the time of recording, we were referring to Christopher Krebs and some of his team that was part of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency within the Department of Homeland Security. They were fired actually just a couple of days after this. So their expectations were met. Carry on. But I think that brings us to kind of exploring if those are some of the possible futures, you know, what are some of the possible societal impacts and kind of mm-hmm. diving a little bit deeper into some interesting trends we've seen. So True. I think the first thing to think about is If the tech-based voting doesn't happen, you know, if we just keep with, you know, embracing paper, I'm sure Mm -hmm. that in this situation, you're still going to have a ton of fervent tech supporters that want to adopt, you know, new tech systems. I mean, we're having this podcast because, you know, we were interested in, in new tech systems. Right. And I think some of the bad aspects of that is it it basically becomes a distraction. I, I think, you know, we're, we're putting this information out there to kind of be like, say that we did the, the research for you and things will change. And, you know, follow DARPA and follow blockchain and follow, you mm-hmm. know, some of the other companies in the space. But I think we need to be focusing a lot of our attention on just other sides of the election and voting and democracy process in general Mm -hmm. and and the opportunities. There's some opportunities there that we can just be better at. It's not, it's not this extremely, you know, uh, hell, hell situation of sorts, (laughs) but yeah, you know, more attention, uh, put towards, you know, electronic voting that isn't well-founded is less attention for things that we can actually improve. Right. Exactly. What's actually good about sticking with paper and, and having that future where we kind of ignore the technology is that, it allows us to use that technology situation as a way to teach friction and friction is this great concept. Um, that's kind of hard to learn, but super important where, you know, the idea that it's hard to vote is sometimes a great thing. You, you want to be, you know, as, as minimal burden as possible, but you don't Mm -hmm. want to make the ability to mess with the system, you know, high, high friction. Like there's, there's, excuse me, you want to make that high friction. You don't want to make yes. that easy. You want to bake in some friction into the system to mm-hmm. allow security and to allow people to, you know, go through the process of thinking who they want to vote for. Things like that are useful. And basically, if you have easy voting, you just no longer have that friction. You know, you solve that right. problem. But in this situation, we can kind of say that, like, well, you know, it might be a lot of work to
1: do uh, that paper ballot system, but it's worth it. Right. Right. And we kind of are built on a higher friction um, government, right? Like mm-hmm. to make an amendment to the Constitution, for example, it's we've made what twenty five up until this point, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and so it, it is very, very, very tough to do, and that's on purpose. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So now, kind of flipping the coin. So if we somehow get secure, you know remote online voting for everybody what are some of those societal impacts and i've got a couple and some of them are good some of them are kind of bad uh good is just the obvious of you know people that are disadvantaged whether that's disabled military people overseas busy workers busy parents business travelers Mm -hmm. those groups can suddenly have more representation if they opt to vote which you know we've seen that sometimes it doesn't work that way or easy isn't isn't always uh emblematic of people actually voting, correct? Right. Yep. Another good but kind of limited um, benefit of adopting some crazy great uh, online remote voting system is that there's a possibility that the frequency of our voting increases. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be voting for president more than every four years. I I hope not. We're not going to bring that down to two years or something like that. So we couldn't really handle that. But Maybe there's other, especially in the United States, where we vote for the dog catcher and, and right, crazy stuff like that. Uh, maybe we can vote for more things more often, you know, if it's something mm-hmm. that's uh, and, and maybe it's smaller communities. You know, your community wants to vote on some certain policy issue. Well, maybe mm-hmm. you don't have to wait till the you know 2022 elections. You can just make it happen in six months time. You know, there'll have to be a lag right. to allow voters to understand what's going on but you could maybe vote more often. That being said, when when you responded to having with a scoff to the president being elected every 2 years, what you're probably <laughs> hating on is the fact that you know, we would have to go through and we'd have this v- voter fatigue that would build up yeah. under the system. So, I think that voter fatigue and the lag time needed to, you know, prepare uh, voters themselves to understand what election is, you know, at stake. I think that that limits the situation but it could be kind of cool to see uh, a little bit more frequency into Mm -hmm. our election system.
1: Yeah. I'm like, like thinking about something way at one end of the spectrum, where it's essentially like very secure polls on your phone, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, you have like these, these uh, very localized polls. And then as you start building up higher and higher, the frequency goes down, but the impact of them goes up. Right. Right. hundred
0: percent. So one of the kind of, you know, darker, uh, spins on like what could happen from secure remote mm-hmm. voting is even if it's totally secure, if it's it probably has to be actually a high- tech solution in order to make that that work. And just the distrust that probably comes from people not being able to understand the system, you know take those 800 pound crazy voting machines. No one could, you know, take take 10 minutes and just understand the system. There's so mm-hmm. much going on there that it was probably hard for people to, like, truly trust, like, oh, this is doing the work. Now, right. you know, spin that up to you're using blockchains and you're using, you know, other crazy ultra-secure technology that maybe DARPA, you know, has under lock and key. They're not going to tell you what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Even if it is 100% secure, you're going to have people... You know complaining that oh cons- conspiracy theory that oh this is <laughs> the case you know something else is happening and just opening up that vector is just kind of sad um that you know even if it is fully secure it's hard to trust that it is so that's mm-hmm. that's tough right and i don't see that really um
1: you know being shaken from the secure voting platform even like something that is you know uh, on paper, totally secure. There was a researcher that I came across multiple times, Alex Halderman Mm -hmm. of the University of Michigan, um, and he worked very closely with the state of Michigan to up the security of their election, or of their elections, right? Mm -hmm. And he was, first and foremost, worried about their data. He's a data scientist, and as he's walking through these polling places... In his mind, he's just ticking off all the ways that they're electronically or digitally not secure. Um, So he worked really hard with the uh, Michigan government to make sure that they really, you know, batten down everything, nail everything down. They're really secure. They've got their data managed. They've got a great process to follow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, he goes to vote in 2018, which was kind of supposed to be the culmination of a lot of his work, and he uh, enters his polling place, and on the table are just stacks of hard drives in a box, these ultra-secure hard drives, which has, it's mm. like the, it's the voting information for the past several days, and the the truck driver that is supposed to keep watch on these at all times, lest literally the only record of the voting in that district could walk away, He went outside to smoke a cigarette real quick, Uh, you know, so you can do all this work just to have it blown apart by a smoke break. Yeah.
0: And I think that's that's what's so crazy about if technology is is perfect, you still have the human element of error. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're putting, you know, a phone in every person's hand to vote, that's awesome. But it also can lead to like more human mistakes and also hacking more human minds, you know, convincing people to vote certain ways because, you know, their environment isn't controlled. So, you know, spoofing a website that claims that you're voting for president but instead they're just throwing away this fake ballot thing that becomes way more realistic than you know spoofing a a voting location like i'm sure that's happened in in some crazy elections but like doesn't happen you know these days yeah that's that's a lot harder
1: to do yeah yeah i know like close to like spoofing a voter location is laying out like a fake ballot box right right a fake ballot box drop box yeah yeah um Speaking of like, you know, that human opportunity versus like the opportunity of process, Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we've really not talked about up to this point and should absolutely be mentioned because it's been a huge deal, especially since 2016. But that's like hacking the electorate, hacking the people, right? Is a much bigger deal and is much more significant than hacking the voting machines, right? And this hacking the process, you
0: know, this might be just rumor mill, but. Theoretically, in 2016, people say that oh, Russia, you know, could have done some hacking of the actual voting process, but instead mm-hmm. they figured ah, it's actually way easier to hack,
1: you know, what people think. Right. Yeah. We don't have to spend millions of dollars and hire all these, you know, extremely dedicated programmers to hack into the U.S. election. We can just make a bunch of memes. <laughs> and like as crazy as that sounds and as like ridiculous as that sounds it does <laughs> there yeah there is absolute evidence to show that Russia and other countries the US included have put a lot a, a lot a lot of money into not hacking the process but rather hacking the people yeah and just to bring it all the way back around to we talked about we talked about Russia and we talked about Italy at the beginning a lot of that money didn't go to you know directly changing votes mm-hmm. and and which is you know all circumstantial at best a lot of that money just went to changing the hearts and minds of the people in whatever way they could and you know that goes to show that like maybe when we're looking forward that's something that we should be thinking about rather than like oh is my is the polling place secure enough or like is my mailing ballot going to be taken by the mail carrier you should more think about what are you, what are you doing all, you know, four years besides the day you're voting? Mm-hmm. How
0: are you making your, your, your vote? You know, like, what are you following? Mm-hmm. What's influencing you? You know, right. trying to audit that process is, is maybe way more important, but is also way harder than trying to mm-hmm. audit or, you know, get a professional person to, to audit, you know, everyone's voting machine. You know, that's something that's established. We don't really have a self audit of how we come to our votes and what influences us and who's behind mm-hmm. that thing. Right. Yeah. That's up to you. That's not up to the state. That's not up to the federal government. Right. It's up to you. So when we talk about, you know, election technology being a distraction from other parts of the election process, this is absolutely one of them. You know, this is Mm -hmm. a huge thing that we need to be diving deeper into, uh, you know, internally and hopefully as a society. Right.
1: so that's all we wanted to talk about today with voting technology John, after these two weeks of research as well as obviously the countless amount of hours you put into viewing the election, observing different things <laughs> what is your what is your takeaway after all of that from looking at this topic
0: yeah so it, it's it's fascinating it's it's really cool to look into this topic and just be stymied you know a, a <laughs> lot of our a lot yeah, of our topics yeah. uh you know one of the criteria that Zach and I use is that it's going to really impact us over the next 20 years or so. And Mm -hmm. this kind of got a pass on that. You know, we, we didn't know it was going to, um, impact us. And, you know, it's probably seen the situation where paper is just fine and it won't really impact us too much. But what that really speaks to me is that, uh, you know, embracing old technologies can be really useful and mm-hmm. instead putting your resources into other spaces that need them. So in this case, you know, don't care about the election technology too much, obviously go with the solution that makes sense, but we don't need to reinvent the the paper slip instead, mm-hmm. you know, focus on other parts of the system. You know, this is one giant democracy system and the voting might be kind of like the pinnacle, the most black and white, who did you vote for part of it? But, these really soft parts about how we are influenced, how campaigns mm-hmm. work, how, you know, we decide who to vote for, how we decide to vote or not. Those are really places that need a lot more of our attention. Right.
1: Yeah. It's like, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this story about NASA trying to design a pencil or a pen mm-hmm. in space. They spent all this money trying to design something to mark up paper in space yes. because pens don't work in zero gravity. And then was um, it Russia? that came up yeah, to the R- <laughs> yeah, Russia came up to the space station and wrote with pencils. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Good for them. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. So how uh, about for
0: you, Zach, what do you, what are you walking away with? What do you kind of want to read more about?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the reading more honestly was the big deal for me. It's kind of humbling on the fact that I've, you know, obviously been an American since the day I was born. Um, and this is the first time that I've really broken down what the Electoral College does, what are the pros and cons, what are the differences that we have, not only just like in the US-centric view, but like how does that compare to what they do in Australia or in Belgium or in Brazil? It's really cool to see at each point where countries are the same and where countries are different, and understanding why that is. Yeah. Um, and so I think it like really gave me a cool Snapshot, I guess, is like where I fit in in this whole like big machine that is the U.S. government mm-hmm. and elections. Um, and it was it was really cool to see, um, yeah. because I don't think that I left. I think it it is a very naive view to say that you have no voice in like what you do at this level really means nothing. I think it was cool to see that Like, n- no, you do. Like, understanding that process allows you to to share your voice as much as you possibly can.
0: Yeah, right. this this felt like a, a teeny accidental crash course in like comparative government, which was a class yeah. that a yeah. lot of people took in, in high school, but I, I did not and yeah, it sounds like you, you walk away with something similar. I, I like mm-hmm. that. So, yeah. you know, this was very enlightening for us. I hope it was enlightening for you. We would love to get a little feedback if you got it. If if you enjoyed it, please write to us. Text us individually if you care for I'll give you Zach's number. And, you know, that could be a correction. It could be a question, a fun fact, a story,
1: whatever you want. We would love to hear it. Right. Uh, If you don't have our personal numbers, you can send us an email at weareheretomorrow at gmail.com. To ask for Zach's number and I'll give it to you. (laughs) Exactly. We'll see. Uh, On social media, you can follow and tweet us at W.A.H.T. Project. And you can see us on Instagram and Facebook at We Are Here Tomorrow Podcast. Right.
0: And if you want to hear more, we are everywhere podcasts can be found. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, some of those random ones that are out there. Um, And if you stop by a site and have the ability to rate us with five stars, give us a
1: comment, whatever it might be, shoot it in there. On behalf of John and I, I want to thank you so very much for listening this week, and be sure to join us in two weeks with another episode. Peace out, everyone. Go vote.